Welcome to Getting Legal With It, a podcast for Colorado young lawyers by Colorado young lawyers. I'm your host, Kevin Chain. For those listening to us for the first time, I'm a personal injury and criminal defense lawyer here in Colorado. I graduated from the University of Colorado Law School in 2014 and founded my practice, Cheney Galusian Howard LLC, a short time later. I'm a member of the Colorado Trial Lawyers Association, where I serve on its board, executive committee, and legislative committee. I also serve on the Colorado Bar Association's Board of Governors, the CBA Executive Committee, and the CBA Young Lawyers Division's Executive Council. Finally, I'm also a member of the Colorado Criminal Defense Bar Association. If you're interested in learning more about any of these wonderful organizations, please feel free to shoot me an email at kevin at cghlawfirm.com. This podcast is created and sponsored by the Colorado Bar Association's Young Lawyers Division. Our goal with this podcast is to bring you bi-weekly episodes with information that is both fun and informative for young lawyers. We have some awesome guests lined up and we are just getting started. If you like our podcast, please, please, please leave us a review and tell your colleagues. And with that, let's jump right in. It's uh, my pleasure today to uh, welcome uh, one of my best friends, actually, to the podcast, uh, Kyle Robinson. Kyle acts as corporate counsel for Common Spirit Health. In his role, Kyle serves as the primary legal support for Common Spirit's home health, hospice, DME, pharmacy infusion, and patient transportation service lines. In addition, Kyle has supported the Common Spirit compliance team on numerous investigations regarding false claims, anti-kickback, and Stark Law issues. Prior to his employment with Common Spirit, Kyle had experience in private practice and with the Children's Hospital Colorado. Kyle, uh, welcome to the podcast. Kevin, it's great to see you. Thank you for having me here today. It's uh, absolutely a pleasure. Uh, Well, obviously, I know who you are, but uh, let's start uh, from the beginning uh, and go ahead and introduce yourself uh, to our listeners and um, tell them a little bit about about, uh, where you're from and how you made it to Colorado. Yeah, sure. So hello, listeners. Uh, Thank you for for (laughs) tuning in. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Uh, uh, As Kyle, uh, as Kevin mentioned earlier, my name is Kyle Robinson. Uh, I am originally from Billings, Montana. I grew up in Billings, Montana. My first memories are Billings, Montana, uh, but I moved moved from Billings, Montana out to Denver in 2007 uh, to attend the University of, of Denver for my undergraduate degree. What, uh, what kind of brought you to Colorado? Did you come for DU specifically or did you come to Colorado and DU was the school you decided to go to? Or Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, it was a little bit of a mix, I would say. I was I was deciding between two business schools to attend. One was Syracuse out in Syracuse, New York, and the other was University of Denver here in Denver. Those I are think. a little different, you know, New York, Denver, you know, a little, little different there. Yeah, quite different. Uh, commonalities are they both have a whole lot of snow. They're roughly yeah. the same size. Okay. Both have great business uh, schools and both have... Uh, relatively terrible football teams. University of Denver doesn't even have a football team. <laughs> uh, you know, you could have, uh, but you got hockey here. I guess you would have had basketball at Syracuse would have yeah. been the, probably the main thing. Absolutely. The orange. Yeah. Yeah. Basketball okay. lacrosse out there is pretty big too. Oh. Um, so nice. Eventually, I think the the decision point was really, uh, I was a big skier uh, in high school and prior to high school, I've been skiing for as long as I remember. And uh, University of Denver has, pretty awesome access to the mountains. Yeah, here, not so. bad. Not yeah. bad. Yeah. Uh, now, when you were looking at the University of Denver, did you know, so I, I'm assuming you majored in business since you were talking about business school. Did you know you wanted to go to law school eventually? Or was that something that kind of developed later? 
Now, certainly uh, was developed later. Um, I, I came to University of Denver wanting to study economics uh, for a variety of reasons. That wasn't the right path for me. And so I went into finance. It was between finance or accounting uh, when I was getting into my junior, senior year. Uh, I chose finance is what I majored in, uh, but I minored in business ethics and legal studies. Pretty interesting minor, okay. but uh, University of Denver does have business ethics and legal studies uh, as a minor. Isn't business ethics the final question in Billy Madison? Have you seen Billy Madison? <laughs> I have. I don't. I don't. I'm pretty sure one. The, one of the final <laughs> questions where the bad guy gets stumped and uh, Adam Sandler chooses business ethics as the uh, the final topic. Anyway, that's just a random tangent, but yeah, it made sure. me think of Billy Madison. Yeah. So anyway, while uh, I was a, a junior uh, undergraduate, my business ethics uh, professor came to me and she was the head coach for the mock trial team and asked if I had any interest in joining the mock trial team. Their opener for the team had dropped off the team and, and they needed somebody to travel with them, go to competitions. And they asked me if, if I wanted to be on the uh mock trial team. And I accepted for some reason, uh, <laughs> I accepted her offer. And uh, that was sort of what sparked my interest in, in law at that time. Uh, and when I graduated, I just didn't quite want to give it up. Okay. Okay. Uh, interesting. And, and did you know you wanted to stay in Colorado? I mean, did you look at DU and CU or did you consider going out of state or kind of how that yeah, play out? You know, I was looking at a variety of schools. I wasn't quite sure. I was looking at Loyola in Chicago. Mm. Uh, I was looking at University of Oregon, uh, Lewis and Clark. Uh, there were a number of schools that I, were, I was really looking into. Um, when I got the, the letter from CU saying I'd been admitted, I think it, it kind of just brought it all together. Um, it was relatively easy to stay in Colorado and, and CU was a fantastic school. I was looking forward to uh, studying there. Did you know when you got into CU what type of law you wanted to do or kind of what practice area you wanted to go into? Uh, I knew it was either going to be litigation related to business or, or something business related. Uh, you know, I knew I didn't want to be a public defender. Uh, I knew I didn't want to be a prosecutor. Uh, something business related, uh, whether it was working at a firm or working in-house at, at an organization. Uh, what I didn't know is that I'd be interested in, in the health law component of things. Interesting. And I think it's, it's always fascinating talking to, you know, probably I think you're at I don't know, Rick, are we at like 25 people, I think, or so for this this podcast? Right around there. I'm talking to our sound guy. Sorry, off stage. Um, but, you know, I, I ask them a lot of that. It's always fascinating. You know, the overwhelming majority of people went to law school and then ended up somewhere a little bit different. Um, I, I, in fact, I think maybe we've had one guest, uh, which is weird because when you're in law school, it always feels like so such a big switch to be like, oh, I came here for environmental law and now I'm a tax lawyer, you know, or, you know, I came here because I want to do public defender and now I'm, you know, do divorce law, you know, and it's just always fascinating because I think it feels like at the time that like it's such this big deal and I, almost everyone I think kind of has a little bit of a, a switch, you know, kind of when yeah. they get to law school. Um, so obviously uh, tell us a little bit about your, your current position and what you do. Sure. So I'm currently corporate counsel, as you mentioned before, for Common Spirit Health. Uh, and just to explain sort of a little bit about Common Spirit Health, it is uh, a, an, uh, an entity that owns and operates a significant number of healthcare entities. It owns about a, a thousand different care sites in 21 states. And that includes about 150 hospitals um, and employs around 150,000 
uh, employees. Small company. <laughs> yeah, so, so, so huge, um, but it requires a, a number of attorneys to provide oversight to the legal affairs uh, of, of that entity. And I'm one of those supporting uh, in-house attorneys. And are uh, most of the attorneys in Colorado or are they kind of spread out through the country? Yeah, so I said we, um, we operate in about 21 different states. There are... Um, maybe about 50 attorneys or so that are employed by the organization that are, they're spread out all over the place. Um, in about two, in February of 2019, uh, two different healthcare organizations came together uh, to form Common Spirit Health. And so a significant number of the attorneys are based out of California right now. Uh, there's a okay. huge presence in California and uh, it requires a, a specific set of knowledge uh, and skills to uh, understand the regulations pertaining to healthcare in California as well. Well, I would assume that like each state has its own kind of unique laws. And so is that one of the reasons why it's important to have kind of people from various different states because there's a lot of different compliance uh, issues? Yeah, that's correct. And, and I think California is kind of on the forefront of implementing and, and innovating in terms of regulations that mm-hmm. are um, imposed on, on healthcare entities as well. Interesting. And I, I'm assuming that's actually probably true of a lot of topics, you know, as California goes, so goes the nation. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, let's talk a little bit about how you got into it. So you mentioned that you went to law school um, and you were really thinking about uh, either some type of litigation or something business related. How did you get attracted to healthcare? Yeah, so my first experience with healthcare is uh, d- after our first year of law school, after we were 1Ls, 1L summer, um, I accepted a summer associate position at a, at a firm called Crowley Fleck in Billings, Montana. And they're a big uh, Montana, Wyoming sort of statewide firm that has a huge presence uh, in oil and gas and also a, a business arm, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we had. Uh, our, our first initial meeting with the summer associates, there might have been eight of us during that initial meeting, and they, they went around and they asked the summer associates, you know, what division do you want to support? What, what do you want to learn? Who do you want to practice with? And they went around, and the first five or six all answered oil and gas. And so by the time they got to me, they said, Kyle, what do you want to do? Everything else is open. <laughs> and so uh, I said uh, litigation, and um, they expressed a need for someone to help their health healthcare department. And I okay. said, "All right, I'll get into healthcare." You know, so so getting uh, getting to pick last, you know, kind of shaped your whole uh, future in that yeah. regard. Yeah, absolutely. It's interesting. You never really know how you know little decisions are going to impact you uh, later in life, and who knows how it would have turned out if you had gotten to pick first. Yep. Um, did you have any, uh, I guess, prior background or interest in healthcare at, at that point? You know, a lot of my family is in healthcare and they've been pressing for me to, uh, you know, my dad wants me to become a doctor. My <laughs> aunt wants me to become a, a nurse. And so there's always been family pressure for me to get into healthcare. And that's helpful in that, you know, I have family members to bounce ideas off of and just become uh familiar with the overall uh, organizational structure of, of healthcare and how it operates and, and some of the uh, terms that are utilized in the healthcare industry. Uh, but other than that, I did not have really any prior experience. You know, I didn't, I probably failed my bio classes. <laughs> I actually dropped out of biology at one point in, uh, in high school, you know, it, it, so no, nothing. Uh, well, there you go, kids. Point. You can drop out of bio in high school and still make it as a healthcare lawyer. So don't give up. Don't give up. Um, 
obviously now you are uh, in-house counsel uh, for a uh, you know massive uh, nonprofit company. Um, and in law school, as you were talking about your, your first summer, you worked for a private firm. Um, how are those different? And I guess the second part of that is why did you end up deciding to go in-house rather than working you know, for a firm? Well, so I, I guess let me start on how it's the same as an attorney. And so um, a, an in-house lawyer is, a, is an attorney uh, that works to primarily advance the needs of the organization itself. And any in-house attorney is acting in their professional capacity. So they're still acting as an attorney. They're still subject to the rules and regulations governing the practice of law. So essentially, an attorney is an attorney, whether you're acting within an organization or whether you're engaged in, in, uh, with an outside firm. Okay. So that's how it's uh, similar. But there are quite obviously a number of differences between practicing in a firm and practicing um, in-house for an organization, being an employee of the organization that, that you are supporting. And I think kind of first and foremost is the, the structure. And so in a firm, you're generally vying for partnership, right? You're doing everything that you can to become a partner uh, unless you establish a firm yourself and then you set your own rules. Uh, but in general, in private practice, you know, you start as an associate and you're vying to become a shareholder or a partner. Uh, the structure is a little bit different in-house. There isn't any sort of partnership track. There isn't any sort of shareholder track. And generally, you're one of two groups. You're either the chief legal officer or the general counsel for the organization, or you're an, a support attorney that's supporting the needs of the general counsel or the, the chief legal officer. So in, in general, the structure uh, is quite a bit different. Do you, so this is one thing I've always kind of w- wondered about. So, you know, you just talked about, so at the head of, of, you know, either your organization or a different organization, you've got, you know, the chief legal officer or the general counsel, who's basically the, the top lawyer. Um, does it do do all of your tasks and assignments and kind of instructions flow from the that individual or you know that department down or do you do lawyers ever report to like non-lawyers like you know would your would would your boss always i guess in your experience be another lawyer or would some of your bosses be you know, other managers or other people in the organization who are kind of instructing you on what to do. Yeah. So that's going to be largely dependent upon, you know, how the organization is, is structured Mm -hmm. itself. And so in general, in, in, uh, the best practice would be it all flows through the general counsel or chief legal officer, if those are two different people, whoever it's uh, pointed towards. But it, there's so much work to be done, that's not always how it occurs. And so, for example, in Common Spirit, we have a contracting process whereby if someone needs a contract done, they fill out uh, an initial sort of intake sheet, support it through – or. Uh, put it through the, the the contracting process and then it's divvied up by subject matter to the attorneys that are supporting uh, either negotiating, drafting, or revising the document. And so it, it really depends on the organization, how it's set up. Uh, but in in general, uh, the, the general counsel doesn't have time to, to divvy up every single matter that's coming in on a daily basis. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. Um, I guess another kind of structural question, um, 
and, and this may be similar to kind of transactional lawyers in other firms. So obviously, uh, Common Spirit Health does business in all of these you know different states and stuff like that. As an in-house uh, lawyer for them, do you need to be barred in in like you know twenty different states? Like, are you licensed in all of those different states, or um, are you allowed to basically be licensed in one state and kind of help out you know this large company um, in you know, various different states? Yeah. So I'll answer the question for our Colorado attorneys and it varies state by state, you know, what, what type of license you have to have. Mm -hmm. Uh, But for our attorneys that are here present and living in Colorado, Common Spirit Health is a a Colorado uh, legal entity. And so uh, I'm barred in, in Colorado and I support that entity. It's my employer and I support its legal needs, mm-hmm. whether that branches out to various states, you know, the, the legal advice I'm providing is to a, a Colorado uh, based organization. Uh, for those attorneys that are not barred in Colorado, there is a, a process you can essentially go through to uh, support a single client within Colorado and you don't have to pass the Colorado bar. It's mm. an application that you put in um, to, to have a single client located in Colorado. So I know that our attorneys that are based in Colorado have gone through that process. Uh, I, I don't know the requirements for our sort of external okay. uh, attorneys, but they've all done their own independent analysis. Right. Um, do you guys, so as a large, uh, uh, you know, organization, um, with, uh, I think you said 50 lawyers. Um, does that basically, do you got to do everything in-house or does like a company that big still sometimes hire outside lawyers uh, for, you know, kind of niche issues or, you know, I don't know, do you guys do your in-house, own in-house litigation and, um, you know, how does that kind of work? Yeah, absolutely. So 50 attorneys is, is not even close to the amount of support that's, that's necessary uh, to fulfill the legal needs of Common Spirit Health. So we do have engagements with a significant number of external law firms uh, that assist in whether it's litigation, whether we need a, a tax attorney on a specific code of the of the Nebraska uh, tax requirements, mm. um, anything across the board that we don't have specialty to do or or capacity uh, to do is is generally. Um, sent to an external firm and will we'll engage a specialty firm to assist in uh, those types of items. I want to shift gears here a little bit. Um, so most of our listeners uh, are either law students or young lawyers, you know, first, second year attorneys um, who are, are trying to make their way in, in the profession. And one of the things I always like to do is kind of ask our guests um, for kind of their advice uh, to those uh, young lawyers and law students. So um, I guess let me first ask you, uh, you know, what are some of the the top skills or qualities that someone looking to practice in health law or in the healthcare world um, should possess? Um, and, and what are, you know, how, well, I guess let's just start there. What are, what are some of the, the qualities and skills that someone looking to practice in health law should possess? Yeah. So Kevin, I, I would say that entering the world of veteran healthcare attorneys can be very intimidating. Um, and, and that uh, it, it can be difficult to, to, to determine as a young attorney or as a starting associate, you know, what value you can exhibit as uh, coming in-house. Uh, but I guess I would recommend that you don't discredit what you've learned in law school. Some of the things you learn in law school are some of the most powerful tools that you have in your bag that aren't 
generally utilized by in-house attorneys. So for example, uh, being able to conduct efficient and effective legal research is incredibly valuable to any sort of healthcare organization that you might work for. And let's not even limit it to healthcare organizations, just any in-house position at, at an organization. Being able to uh, efficiently facilitate everything in Westlaw is, I mean, it's crazy. Uh, it, it's crazy what new graduates can do in terms of finding case law, looking at state surveys, looking at all the different ancillary documents or templates that are available. I would say most seasoned or veteran in-house attorneys might not even know that those are possible. Well, I was saying, I got to believe that health law is just such an incredibly broad, um, I guess, uh, area. You know, you got everything from medical malpractice litigation to um, hospital laws and rules to I'm sure there are lawyers that just specialize in like the insurance side of everything to licensure and regulation of like the nurses. So um, I, I got to believe that, you know, uh, there can be an interest in health law, but then there also is just like all of these like subspecialties and stuff. Is that is that kind of right? Yeah, absolutely. And there are some attorneys that that specialize in very, very specific areas, like uh, certain commercial payer reimbursement is something that if <laughs> if you know the ins and outs of that, you'll have a job tomorrow at certain <laughs> healthcare firms. So uh, I, I think it's important to really understand sort of the backbone of uh I think being a great healthcare attorney is understanding the regulatory environment. There are so many universes of regulations that apply to uh, any type of healthcare service that's provided, that it's an important not really to understand those regulations, but to understand what universes might even apply to a specific scenario, whether it's a, a state administrative code, whether it's a CMS condition of participation, you know, whether it's an accrediting body policy. Um, there's there's just so much that um, it's important to understand the breadth of what's what's out there. Can it be beneficial to take uh, if your law school offers it, kind of like health law? Um, classes or is it something that, you know, if you pick up kind of just general legal skills, like you mentioned, like good legal research, good legal writing, that kind of stuff that you can kind of learn on the job? You know, I, I think both, but I do think that if your school offers it, it's largely beneficial to take classes that at least allow you to dip your toes in healthcare. It, it might not help you day one, but it can certainly uh, shape your path Mm. or guide you as to whether you're uh, truly interested in what, what healthcare can offer. A, a, a second um, thing that I've seen sort of growing uh, in popularity is there are certain programs called medical legal partnerships mm. that certain law schools are developing. And it could be a class, it could be a clinic, but it's essentially law school students teamed up with uh, hospital employees, whether it's compliance or social services, to essentially uh, solve issues that might be present to patients or their administration. And so I know, I know CU had a program like that. I think they still have a program like that. Uh, and I was part of it at that point. And I thought that was, that was truly instrumental in, in shaping my path forward. Yeah. Super interesting. And I guess that's a great segue for, for my next question. So beyond like classes and skills they can develop, 
what are some of the most valuable early career kind of extracurricular activities or things that, you know, young lawyers or law students can be doing looking to advance their career in kind of this realm? Yeah, so if you, if you already are an attorney and you're looking to get CLEs, there are a, a huge number of CLEs that are put out by either uh, the American Health Law Association is a big organization that puts out um, unlimited CLEs on, on any topic under the rainbow. Um, and so being a member of that organization, you get pinged daily, weekly on opportunities mm. in terms of uh, very specific areas. Uh, the HLA also holds an annual conference, and that's a conference that a, a number of healthcare attorneys. What is the attend. HLA? HLA is the American Health Law Association. Okay. Okay. Yep. Uh, and so a number of uh, health law attorneys will attend that even on an annual basis. Oh, wow. um, it provides kind of a primer and an update to advancements in the law or case law over the last year, kind of what CMS is looking to implement, what are the enforcement plans for the government over the next year. And so it gives you a good primer of what to expect or what has changed. Nice. And so those kind of things, I guess, both would, you know, help you, you know, have a better understanding, but also probably help yourself be more marketable. Um, you know, if you can come in and say, hey, like, you know, I learned about some of these new emerging trends or, you know, these new changes in regulation, because I got to believe that as soon as you learn everything in health or not everything in healthcare, but as soon as you learn everything about your little area, then, you know, it can constantly change with, you know, all on either on the state or the federal level, uh, you know, rules and regulations and laws, you know, kind of co constantly being in flux in the, in the healthcare world. Yeah, absolutely. And we're seeing a lot of that uh, in modern day you know, waivers of regulations uh, due to COVID relief. Well, that's actually a, a, a great segue to kind of dig a little bit deeper into kind of um, what are the hot topics of uh, healthcare law and healthcare related law right now? Um, let me kind of start off with just a, a broad question. How has um, COVID-19 impacted healthcare in this country? Yeah, so since I've been practicing, it's, it's probably the biggest shift in how uh, providers approach the delivery of healthcare. I think in general, healthcare was delivered in a very traditional sense in that you're a patient, you have a problem, you go to a clinic or go to your primary care physician, and they decide how to treat that, uh, that ailment. And so that um, form of treatment has kind of been thrown out the window with COVID and that uh, patients might not be available to come to the hospital or there might be various precautions put in place where there's distancing. Um, and so in general with COVID, um, we've had to address, you know, how can we as a healthcare industry better and more efficiently provide care to patients, whether it's in person or whether it's over the phone, whether it's over a tablet, whether it's by a robot. I mean, there have been a, a, a tremendous amount of ways that uh, practitioners have looked into how to provide care. And with those new and innovative ideas, you have almost this archaic reimbursement system that has been developed by CMS, which is the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services, in terms of how the provision of healthcare services are reimbursed. And so we're starting mm. to see uh, an acknowledgement by CMS that we need to sort of revise how and what is reimbursed 
uh, in terms of the provision uh, of those services. And, and so I, to kind of follow up on that, so what you're saying is that the traditional model of medicine in the United States has been, you know, you have an ailment, you go in person to a doctor's office, the doctor sees you, maybe a nurse sees you, maybe a specialist sees you. And then the government, uh, who is, I'm sure, the, the largest payer, I guess, in, in the country, um, they then reimburse that doctor or that hospital or whatever for for that care. And now because a lot of people are doing like telemedicine or, you know, all of these different types of uh, healthcare delivery mechanisms. Um, the, the, it's been a little slow to kind of update, you know, okay, you know, how, how do I get reimbursed for a phone call with a patient or something like that? And so prior to 2019, there was almost no way to be reimbursed for a physician talking to a patient, for a physician spending 15 minutes, 30 minutes speaking to a patient over the phone, or even having you know, you know, what would have been a, a Zoom conversation in 2019 with that patient. And so what we've seen in the last two years, you know, absent even COVID, is CMS uh, developing new mechanisms for mm. reimbursement for telehealth visits. Uh, and due to COVID, we've seen what they call an 1135 waiver, where uh, CMS has come out and said, you know, during this emergency, we are providing a declaration of blanket waivers to uh, mm. certain regulations, meaning we are not going to enforce these regulations. And one okay. of those regulations uh, was with regard to telehealth services, in that the only way that telehealth could be reimbursed uh, previously was that if there's both an audio and video connection between uh, either the physician or the, the provider and the patient. And so Interesting. they relaxed the video component of that. Right. And that's in order to promote you know, more access to those, whether they're in rural areas, whether, you know, a patient only has access to a phone rather than a system that has video capabilities. Mm. You know, they're doing these things to uh, essentially promote more access to care during COVID. Do you see a, a lot of the the changes that we've made to the healthcare system during COVID, uh, you know, hanging around? Like, do you think that will ever go back to the old model where medicine was almost always delivered uh, or, or healthcare, I mean, was almost always delivered in person? Um, or do you think that telehealth and, and kind of some of these new ideas or, or maybe they were already around, but really, you know, sprung out everywhere. Do you see those kind of hanging around once the pandemic is over? Or do you think you will, you'll see a, a shift back towards the the old school methods, I guess? You know, I, I think to an extent, certain changes are here to stay. I think it makes no sense if you have a follow-up you know, appointment with the physician. You know, why can't I speak to him on the phone, tell him how I'm feeling? You know, almost the, the, the Amazonization of, of healthcare is it's it would be much easier for me to you know, wake up, talk to my physician in the morning, have that follow up visit on my phone uh, and that be an, an allowed reimbursable event. Uh, what I don't think will change is that so much of healthcare requires that that in-person contact, you know, it requires an expert to you know, do a diagnosis in person, to, you know, to touch and feel and, and to administer certain maybe pharmaceuticals or treatment in mm -hmm. person. A lot of that, I think, will see a, a more so a return to the standard, what we what we had previously um, practice. Interesting. You know, it's, it's going to be 
you know, interesting to watch and, and kind of develop. Because I, I even see now with my, um, I have Kaiser, and I know that they called me to schedule a physical, which they normally do like every two years, and it's being scheduled as a telehealth visit and they're like at the end of your visit we'll email you over uh, uh, a document with all the lab tests we need you to do and you'll print it off and you can go into any Kaiser location in Colorado and they'll run your labs and and so it, it was yeah. just really fascinating yeah <laughs> so do you prefer that method or would you rather go um, into the to the physician I think as a young you know relatively healthy person that doesn't have really any ailments, you know, like if I had like a weird mark on my body or like was in pain somewhere, I would probably want to go in just because like you said, like, you know, if I'm having back pain, like they may want to actually touch my back and like have me bend in different ways and kind of see where the pain is. Um, but as a relatively healthy person, I mean, it saves me, you know, 30 minutes in drive time, saves me having to wait in a, a lobby uh, with COVID, you know, obviously going on. It saves me from having to enter a, a hospital or something like that. Um, and you know, being able to print out the labs and, you know, go being able to go to any of the like, I don't know, 20 different Kaiser labs in the metro area. Um, you know, it, it makes it it makes it easier, you know, so it's it's interesting. You know, it's different. I think as a young person, though, I'm, I'm probably more easy to adapt than somebody who, you know, has been seeing doctors in person for, you know, 70 years. And like the idea of like doing their annual exam on, you know, an iPad is just like, you know, super scary for them. Um well, so we've talked a little bit about how it's changed healthcare. Um, how has it changed the the legal pr- profession or the legal side of healthcare? Um, has has COVID, I guess, impacted your your kind of day to day job and kind of what things you're focused on and, and and working on over at Common Spirit? My opinion is that uh, it's it's made things a lot more difficult, and the reason mm-hmm. being is that you know, for example, I mentioned the alert eleven thirty five waivers earlier. And so the 1135 waivers, I mean, the, the, the entire document of what is being waived is, is almost a book. It's in, in, in March 1st of 2020, they released a book and said, the, all of these things are waived. And so what, <laughs> and you're like, wait, every, everything I ever knew, all of the rules are gone, yeah. effective tomorrow. <laughs> yeah. And so I think intuitively what you do as an administrator of a hospital is you, you know, think of ideas. You think, okay, how can I interpret this being waived? How can I create a new program that's you know, in line with these new regulations? And in general, the, the counsel for any organization is being called into those meetings and being asked, well, can't we do this? And there's not really any sort of guidance to rely upon. You're operating <laughs> in an entirely gray area. Yeah, there's no case law to, you can look uh, at. Yeah. No one's done it before, yeah. you know. Exactly. So these new innovative ideas are uh, occurring. You know, they're being developed. They're uh, successfully being practiced. And at some point, probably here in the new future, those waivers are going to be discontinued. And so those programs also have to be discontinued, you know, unless CMS changes its original regulations. So with the example you gave earlier, so right now you can get reimbursed for just doing a phone call with no video, but, you know, next year CMS could say, all right, that waiver's done. And, you know, every telehealth visit needs to be over Zoom or something with both audio and video. Yeah. Yeah. And so we're seeing massive growth in the industry of remote care, whether it's remote patient monitoring, we send you a package like you, you said you got a lab test kit you need to do yourself and send in or whether you put on a heart 
monitor or you have a scale at home, you know, whatever it is, there's a huge growth in remote patient monitoring. There's a huge growth in ensuring that patients, you know, have the proper technology uh, to talk with their clinicians, talk with their physicians. And so I think the healthcare industry is acknowledging how the future of, of healthcare looks. The problem is we don't know what it's going to look like from a reimbursement standpoint or a regulatory standpoint. Interesting. Well, let's uh, let's move on to one of the more, uh, I guess, uh, heated uh, issues of the day um, and talk a little bit about vaccines and kind of mandatory um, vaccinations. So what are some of the and we're going to keep this, you know, super general, um, but what are some of the challenges that, you know, employers are kind of facing with implementing these kind of mandatory vaccination policies? Yeah, so I think we've seen from you know, the the you know, White House standpoint, we've seen our, our president announce that, you know, all facilities that are receiving Medicare and Medicaid funding are required uh, to implement requirements that, that their practitioners are vaccinated. Um, and so what we've seen, I think, in response to that is a number of employees implement mandatory uh, vaccine requirements as a condition of employment. So essentially what most healthcare entities are saying is that if you want to remain employed with us, uh, you are required to get the COVID vaccine. Uh, and so we've seen a variety of legal issues arising from that, obviously. There are a number of employees that don't agree with uh, getting the vaccine, whether it's for a, a, a valid exemption reason or whether it's uh, on from a, a personal value standpoint. Uh, there are a significant number of individuals across the United States, healthcare or not, uh, that are in strong opposition to, to that requirement. Recently, there have been a few court cases, a few cases that have uh, come out in, in support of the ability uh, of employers to, uh, to, to implement a, a vaccine requirement. Yeah, and it's, it's been interesting to watch. And, and even here in, in Colorado, there's been a slew of, of litigation. I was just um, reading in the uh, paper yesterday, uh, I think seven. Um, so obviously, uh, for those who don't know, we had a vaccine mandate from the mayor's office that all employees of the city of Denver um, were required to get uh, mandatory uh, vaccination. Um, and that included, you know, law enforcement, firefighters and, you know, basically everyone from the, the janitor, you know, all the way up to, you know, chief of staff. Basically, anyone who got a paycheck from the city of Denver had to get vaccinated. And seven, I believe, police officers filed a lawsuit uh, alleging that that violated their rights. Uh, and that was just dismissed uh, yesterday. We're shooting this on September 30th. So that would have been September 29th, in case you're listening uh, for this in uh, the future. But um it's been really interesting to kind of see both state level, federal level, all of the different kind of um, litigation. But and, and correct me if I'm wrong, from what I've been seeing, it seems like the employers are, are winning the overwhelming majority of the time. Not not unanimously. I mean, I think there have been some uh, I think New York. There was a judge that ruled for uh, at least at the trial court level that ruled for an employee or a group of employees, but generally, at least from what I've been seeing, that the employers have generally been winning this this argument. Yeah, I would agree with that. I, I haven't 
I don't think I've even seen a case where the employees themselves were winning. There, there's a cool case uh, that came out uh, three days ago. One of my colleagues circulated it internally just for you know our review. It's called uh, Beckridge First St. Elizabeth Medical Center. It's out of the Eastern District uh, of Kentucky. Mm-hmm. And the plaintiffs were suing, uh, looking for a preliminary injunction against the uh, mandatory vaccine. And they argued a number of things. They made a bunch of constitutionality uh, arguments, uh, but they also argued that the mandatory vaccine requirement violated the Americans with Disability Act, as well as Title VII of the Civil Rights Act. Uh, and the court dismissed uh, any of the, the constitutional right arguments, mm. indicating that uh, the hospital system didn't qualify as a state actor. So it's it's blanket okay blanket okay. dismissed on the constitutional uh, rights the arguments uh, under the Americans with Disability Act and Title VII of the Civil Rights Act. Each of those require a private employer, so it doesn't apply to private employers uh, to provide reasonable accommodations to any sort of mandatory policies that are implemented. And because the health system offered both uh, an exemption process for medical reasons and for religious region, reasons, uh, the court said that it was reasonable and, and dismissed the preliminary, preliminary injunction. Interesting. Yep. It's been interesting to see different, uh, even different companies within the same industry, the way that they have kind of uh, tried to get vaccination. I'm thinking specifically of the airline industry. Uh, I was reading yesterday. Uh, United, which did a mandatory vaccination, um, they ended up having to fire, I think, 400 people, but they employ tens of thousands. And so it ended up being like 400 people, uh, you know, didn't qualify for an exemption and ended up being fired, which was uh, noticeably less than 1% of their workforce. Um, but then you look at a company like Delta, which took a different tact. And rather than mandating the vaccine, they said anyone who doesn't get the vaccine has to pay an additional $200 per month uh, for their health care premium, basically saying it's costing Delta every time someone goes to the hospital with COVID, it's costing us because they self-insure. So it's costing us, you know, tens of thousands of dollars to pay for your health care. So if anyone doesn't want to get vaccinated, that's fine, but it's going to cost you an extra $200 a month. And they have seen massive uh, spikes in uh, the amount of people getting vaccinated because they were like, all right, you know, we're not going to fire you, but do you really want to pay $200 a month? And uh, uh, probably, especially if you don't make, you know, maybe if you're like a pilot and, or, you know, doing really well, but you know, if you're, you know, working at, you know, the baggage claim or something like that, you're probably like, no, I don't want to spend $200 a month. And so it was a way that it was like a mandate without a mandate, you know? Um, and it's been, you know, kind of interesting to see how all of that, uh, will play out. Um, are you a little bit surprised that there's been, I guess healthcare is just such a big industry. It always shocks me when, and I think we just saw a lawsuit from someone at Children's Hospital about their vaccine mandate that was just fought, that was just filed like yesterday or a couple of days ago. Has it surprised you a little bit in the healthcare industry that there's been such pushback? Uh, or do you think it's just a really small but vocal minority that because of their profession gets a lot of like press and media attention? Yeah, I think a little bit of both. I'm I'm very much surprised in terms of the outrage uh, to the, the, the vaccine uh, mandate, essentially, from from a lot of healthcare organizations. And the reason I'm so surprised is that there are a number of healthcare organizations that have implemented mandatory flu vaccine requirements in the past. Oh, so this isn't new in like the healthcare industry. 
No, or, yeah, or, no. I mean, maybe the extent is new, but like, th- I mean, there have been like vaccine requirements and stuff in the healthcare industry. Yeah, ab- absolutely. In prior. Yep. Interesting. Yep. And so what surprises me is, is that those that have not had an issue with the flu vaccine requirement are now having an issue with, with the COVID vaccine requirement. Granted, there are certainly differences involved, uh, but I would have expected the same sort of outcry in terms of uh, flu vaccine requirements of the past. Interesting. Well, uh, Kyle, it's been such a pleasure, man, having you on the uh, podcast and kind of talking about all of these different issues. I think you're actually our first uh, in-house, in-house uh, counsel individual. Um, I think you are our second, maybe, healthcare uh, person that we've had on. I think we had someone that did a little bit of med- medical malpractice. So uh, really fascinating to talk about these issues with you. I like to end uh, each podcast the same way. Um, if there's anyone listening, law student, young lawyer, uh, who's interested in being an in-house counsel or is interested in healthcare law or is interested in anything that we've kind of talked about here today. Uh, one, is it okay to reach out to you? And two, uh, what is the the best, like what's your email address or what's the best way to uh, kind of uh, reach out to you? Yeah, sure. So uh, absolutely. Open invitation. Please feel free to reach out to me. I'm, I'm happy to sit down with anybody that's interested in healthcare or even interested in, in law school in general uh, to, to, be a, a backboard for any sort of questions uh, that you might have. I would say the best way to reach me is my personal email. That's uh, Kyle Robinson, DU uh, at gmail.com. Well, there you go. Uh, Kyle Robinson, DU at gmail.com. If you want to get a hold of Kyle, uh, thank you again, Kyle, for, for coming on the podcast. It was a really interesting and informative uh, conversation. So thank you so much. Yeah, thank you, Kevin. Get legal with it.